All right. Uh, the session is um, an update on HIV-AIDS. My name is Dr. Suzanne Snyder. I wear a lot of different hats. Um, I lived and worked in Kenya for 16 years, and I still work as a medical consultant with the health um, care system that I worked uh, with when I was living full-time in Kenya. I also volunteer with Samaritan's Purse, a great organization. I'm glad I get to do some short-term uh, mission work through them. And to pay the bills, I'm an emergency room physician in Greenfield. We're going to be looking at the demographics of the HIV AIDS pandemic and particularly some of the medical aspects and what's new, but also kind of what the remaining challenges are. Realizing that HIV AIDS is not just a medical problem, but it's got social, emotional, spiritual, cultural dynamics, and they are all intertwined. As I mentioned, um, I lived and worked in Kenya, East Africa for 16 years as a medical missionary. I lived out in the bush, uh, worked with several, um, a system of clinics that provided uh, emergency and ambulatory care um, in the village locations. Uh, I was there as the HIV AIDS epidemic began to hit um, back in the 80s and uh, early 90s, and I could see as the number of cases were increasing that we had a ticking time bomb. But unfortunately, in the 1990s, we didn't have treatment to start out with. So we used what we had available, that was the church and education and village-level awareness to try to just teach people on how do you get HIV-AIDS and how do you not, how can you keep the transmission from occurring. Well, over the two, last two decades, I've seen this healthcare system, the Maasai healthcare system, uh, really grow and mature, and they're doing a terrific job. Oh, I need them both. Okay. All right. Now I'm truly wired for sound. Okay. And I okay, I can move around a little bit. Um, so now these are these are current uh, photos of the Maasai healthcare system that I was a part of, and they are continuing despite not having missionary presence there all the time. And I'm very proud of them. Uh, they have um, fully uh, educated and certified staff, nurses, clinical officers, laboratory techs, pharmacy techs. They have a fully functional lab actually multiple labs in several clinic locations as well as a fully stocked pharmacy. So let's look at some of the statistics of the HIV AIDS pandemic. Um, I'm going to blow this up just a bit in terms of looking at the um, prevalence. Who is living with HIV AIDS? There are 35 million people at this point still living with HIV AIDS. And you can look at the map here. The burden really is heaviest in sub-Saharan Africa um, with about 70% of all of those with HIV AIDS living there. The first time that I spoke on HIV AIDS uh, in this conference was in 2006. And I don't necessarily consider myself an international expert. I can only speak from my own experience. Um, but I hope it can be helpful to you as we look at it. I'd like to do a little bit of contrast and comparison between the information that I had from 2006. I pulled some of those slides out just for us to look at them and compare to what's going on now. And as you can see, there's a lot of similarities in the map. Um, again, sub-Saharan Africa really carries the bulk of this disease and has over the last decade. It's still a crisis. There have been 39, 30, sorry, 39 million people have died from HIV AIDS, we have 35 million still infected and living with it, and 25 million orphans. Even just last year alone, 
one and a half million people died, and there were two million newly infected HIV-AIDS patients. When you look at the um, comparison uh, between 2006 and now, in 2006, 30 million had died. We're up to 39 million. Definitely those numbers are going up. There is some good news, though, that in 2006 we had 40 million people living with HIV-AIDS, and that number has gone down to 35 million. Of course, the orphans, a uh, number of those have gone up. And in just uh, a single year span, in 2006, 3 million people died within a year, and we're down to 1.5 million. So, you know, the death rate has been cut in half. Um, that's a, a significant success but it's not necessarily good to have one and a half million people die from a disease. So we still have a lot of work to do. And in 2006, there were five million new cases, uh, new transmissions, and we're down to 2.1 million. So again, a lot of success. A lot of great things are happening in the HIV AIDS care. We still have a long ways to go. And basically, there are 6,300 new infections per day. Okay, so... Um, looking at those 6,000 new infections, again, 70% are in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, about 10 to 15% are children under 15, and over half are women. A third are young people, and a huge number are discordant couples. So um, when you have um, a couple where one is HIV positive and the other is HIV negative, we call that a serodiscordance, and that's a significant problem. Obviously, the HIV-positive patient can transmit the virus through sexual contact, and heterosexual contact is still the number one mode of transmission, and then mother to child through um, um, pregnancy and breastfeeding is the second most common. Those are still true. So there's definitely a disparity in HIV infection that affects women and children this is a, a World Health Organization slide, just kind of giving you all those numbers in one place. Uh, 35 million people living with HIV-AIDS last year, 2 million new infections, 1.5 de million deaths. So looking at the, the mortality and the deaths, again, just kind of with a map, you can see, again, Sub-Saharan Africa is really carrying the burden of the deaths. We've got 1.5 million deaths, 1.2 million of those in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, this is a very busy slide. It's kind of difficult, but it just kind of helps to look at the different regions and um, the number of people living with HIV-AIDS. Uh, the second column is the new infections. And then what I found interesting and why I put this in here was the prevalence. Um, when I was working in Africa, the prevalence at that time in Kenya was anywhere from 10 to 15 percent. It's huge, and it's gone down dramatically. Prevalence in Kenya now is about 6 to 7 percent. In sub-Saharan Africa overall, you'll see from the slide, it's uh, 4.7 percent, and the U.S. and the Americas is 0.3 percent. Uh, and this is uh, a map showing that same information. Now, whereas the prevalence overall in sub-Saharan Africa is 4.7%, you've got some places like Botswana, Swaziland, where you still have 25 to 30% prevalence. So it varies vastly across the continent of Africa, and there are some places that still have a really high HIV-AIDS burden. But the prevalence is going down, and that's a huge success. So what's, where, where is this coming from? 
Well, first of all, we're getting fewer transmissions, so we're getting a decreased number of positive HIV tests, and that's a success. And there's also been tremendous success in preventing mother-to-child transmission. So we're getting a lot fewer babies who are becoming HIV-positive uh, transmission from their mothers. There's also been an increasing number of people on ART treatment, on antiretroviral treatment. Now, you might think, well, if there are more people on treatment, they're going to live longer. That actually increases your prevalence. Um, but the people who are on treatment with decreased viremia are going to have less chance of transmitting. So you have decreased incidence because of increased treatment. So that's how that plays into the prevalence. And we've thrown out a bunch of statistics, and i just like to remind everyone that behind every statistic is a person. <coughs> and I like to put some faces and names to those. This is Oletira. He came to the clinic. Um, I just came back uh, from Kenya. I was there. I try to go every year for the board meeting. Um, it's been a couple of years since I was there, but I had the, the honor and privilege of going this last October. Yes, it's been over 21 days, and I haven't had a fever, so we're good. Um, Oletira came to the clinic to see me. He had had swelling in his feet uh, for six months, three to six months, and it just wasn't going away. Um, he also had a rash and some dry skin, and um, mainly it was just the swelling in his feet. So let's just open this up for a minute. What thoughts do you have? What would you be checking for? What would you want to know about him? Are we assuming he has HIV? We should. And um, that's one of the points I'm going to be bringing up in terms of presentation. How does HIV AIDS present now? And the thing to think about is anything that is persistent. If you have any kind of chronic illness, think HIV. Yes. And, in fact, he did, he did test positive. Um, he also had... Um, and just in terms of pedal edema, you know, you want to think about, okay, is this heart problem? Is this a lung problem? Is this a uh, liver or a kidney problem? Uh, he had hypertension. His blood pressure was 175 over 110. It's kind of high. Uh, we checked his urine, and he had protein and red cells. So he's got probably like a nephropathy. And, and my, my guess at the time I left, we were thinking that he probably had the AIDS nephritis nephropathy because he had not been on treatment yet. Uh, this is Heinz Robin. Uh, she has been struggling with a breast infection. Uh, the, the picture is a little hard to tell, but the, she's standing a little crooked, but her, her right breast is just enormous um, and has had um, prevalent drainage, um, the skin changes, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of pain. She's been dealing with a lot, a lot of pain. We actually did an aspiration. I was going to do an incision and drainage for an abscess, we didn't have a sterile uh, knife at that point, but we had some needles and syringes and actually drew off about 60 cc's of perillant material from her right breast. She also has, I don't know if you can see, dry skin perlesh, uh, cracking of the mouth. Any thoughts on her? Any tests you want to get? HIV, that's right. And uh, unfortunately, she is HIV positive. These two cases um, kind of bring up the point in terms of how does AIDS prevent present. The number one um, most likely presentation at this point is a skin condition, actually. But like I said, anything persistent, a chronic medical condition that's lasted over a month, persistent headache, think cryptococcal meningitis, persistent fever, think TB, persistent weight loss, 
all of the above. So um, definitely kind of chronic illness is uh, a key presentation, and it's often impacted by nutritional status. Um, HIV-positive folks that we pick up just on routine testing uh, who come in either voluntarily or by diagnostic testing and counseling, um, often they're not ill yet, but those who come to the clinic looking for treatment often have been suffering with this for a long time. And um, their family has used a lot of resources uh, trying to find a cure. Often they have sold everything, uh, trying to get help. Coming to our clinic base may be their last-ditch effort, and they often have not been eating well, eating whatever is available and has impacted their nutrition and their clinical presentation. Okay, well, what's new in testing? Kind of an alphabet soup. First we had a VTC, and then we went to DTC, and then PITC, and now we just have HTC. Um, so testing initially was voluntary, trying to get people to come in for testing. Um, then while I was still there in Kenya, we moved to diagnostic uh, testing and counseling, whereas health professionals, we could order the test and just get it as a diagnostic tool. That kind of led into provider-initiated testing and counseling. Now we just have HIV testing and counseling, and it covers all of the above. And kind of the bottom line here is that everybody is encouraged to be tested. Every patient that walks in, every time they come into the clinic, we invite them to get tested. Um, and this is a testing center. It's a mobile clinic. It was a very um, savvy little trailer that had testing services, lab facilities, vaccine booth, um, testing, counseling, treatment, the whole nine yards, and could go on the road. Also what's new is, um, by law, all pregnant women are tested. Uh, ANC, uh, antenatal care is, is kind of one of the buzzwords now. And in routine antenatal care, HIV is included as well as testing for syphilis, hepatitis B, and urinalysis. Also in testing, there's a big push to get partners. To For every patient, there are sexual partners. So try to get everybody tested at the same time. And the World Health Organization states that all testing, needs, all testing and counseling needs the five C's with informed consent, confidentiality, counseling, correct test results, and linkage to care. Okay, well, what's new with prevention? There's a couple of new acronyms, TASP and PREP, and both of these have to do with discoordinate couples. Remember that um, depending on where, what country you're looking at, anywhere from 55 to 93% of new transmissions is from discoordinate couples. So this is a huge population that is a key group to target. And there's two new treatment strategies. One is TASP, which is antiviral treatment as prevention. This is where the HIV-positive member of the couple is started on antiretroviral therapy. Now, generally, if they had a CD4 count that was low enough, that would get them into the program for treatment. But with TASP, they're all put on treatment. Um, regardless of what the CD4 count is, if they're HIV-positive, they're put on three-drug ARV treatment. And it has brought a 96% reduction in transmission. So this is huge. The other side is PrEP, which is actually ARV treatment for the HIV-negative member of the couple. This is, uh, this is, this is new. And um, ba basically it means putting the HIV-negative person as well on antiretroviral treatment as a pre-exposure prophylaxis. And that's usually tenofovir um, or a combination. 
Uh, the World Health Organization has guidelines for PrEP, and there's, there's the new push to use pre-exposure prophylaxis, particularly in high-risk groups, and they're listed here. Definitely the serodiscordant couples and MSM, men who have sex with men, are considered high-risk, and there's a strong recommendation to put them on pre-exposure prophylaxis. Another prevention strategy is prevention with positives. And uh, the Stay Positive campaign is one that I've seen a lot of success with. Uh, Jennifer is, is a proponent of this. She's been living with HIV-AIDS now for 13 years. Uh, she is in good health. She is not only a teacher, but a principal in uh, the school in Mathari in Nairobi. Uh, the Stay Positive campaign focuses on treatment in order to stay living and keep living, uh, attitude to keep joy, and active non-transmission. In other words, keep your HIV to yourself. So it's a program to learn how to live with HIV and how to keep it from transmission to others. Also in prevention is post-exposure prophylaxis. Um, as health professionals, we may be familiar with this in terms of contaminated needle sticks. Almost every one of us in this um, profession will get one at some point or another and have to go through this. Um, the, the caveats are to start as soon as possible within 48 hours, and it's three-drug treatment for 28 days. Um, this is basically up here to just say there's been a lot of changes. This is the chart that's up on the wall in our clinics for preventing mother-to-child transmission care and the protocol. But actually, you probably can't read this. It's too small, and that's okay because it's old. It, it, this is not used anymore. Um, PMCT is probably the area where I'm seeing the greatest amount of change in a, sh change in a short amount of time. It's very much in flux. Um, a lot of countries are doing different things. A lot of areas are doing different things. Um, but in terms of the standard of care, um, that's what I'll focus on. PMCT is being successful. And this is one area where I'm really pretty excited about it because the last time I lectured on this um, and when we initially had just one or two drug treatment uh, with nevirapine, it was very encouraging to see that the, um, the transmission rate of HIV-positive mothers to infants is, without any medication is 30%. Okay, so a third of those babies are going to um, become HIV-positive if there's no intervention. With the single-dose nevirapine and with the postpartum uh, care, initially we saw a reduction in transmission to 15%. It was cut in half. But studying those kids out two years later, the transmission rate was back to 30%. And that was probably from breastfeeding. And so several years ago it was very discouraging that we weren't, weren't really making any progress. But we are now. And there's definitely increasing success and decreasing transmission. And there are several components to the program. First of all, all pregnant women are tested by law. Everybody's tested, and it really helps to reduce the stigma when, well, everybody's getting tested. And so, you know, I go in to get my antenatal care, and I get my HIV test, and it's just part of the package. So testing is much more accepted. Secondly, it's three-drug treatment. That's the standard, three drugs uh, of art. Um, antiretroviral therapy. And it's basically begun as soon as you know the, pa the patient is HIV positive. Uh, there used to be a lot of debate, and there's still some flux in this. Um, some of the antiretrovirals, uh, there's concern about teratogenicity, and you don't want to give them early in pregnancy. Um, 
Well, we're kind of working through that, and moms basically moms are put on three drug art. Um, and then nevirapine is still used for the baby. And in our program, as soon as a pregnant woman comes in, pregnancy is diagnosed. If she's HIV positive, she's not only started on the three drug um, heart therapy, but she's also given the nevirapine to take it home. So she has it available. If she gives birth, the baby's given its first dose right away. This is a graph that is showing some of this success. The blue line at the top is the number of HIV-positive pregnant women, and that number is going down, so that's very encouraging. It's not a dramatic drop, but it is going down. More encouraging, though, is this tan line of the um, treatment. Um, so while we have fewer HIV-positive pregnant moms, um, and that number is coming down, the HIV-positive pregnant women on treatment is dramatically going up. And you can see by the percentages, whereas in 2005, we only had 13% of HIV pregnant moms on therapy. Now we're up to 67%. So that's a dramatic increase, and it's really helping to decrease the transmission. And, and what about breastfeeding? Several years ago in the States, we basically had the, uh, the standard that all HIV positive pregnant moms, when they gave birth, their babies would be bottle-fed and formula-fed, so we avoided the transmission that would happen during breastfeeding. Well, in Africa, that's not economically feasible, and so for the most part, we encouraged breastfeeding only, because actually your transmission breastfeeding only is less than partial breastfeeding, because if you take in any kind of cow's milk, goat's milk, tea, then you can set the child up for gastritis, which actually increases the risk of HIV transmission. Well, now the good news is that the standard now is to give all those babies nevirapine until they stop breastfeeding. So there's no endpoint anymore, and the babies stay on nevirapine throughout breastfeeding. And I think that is what is really turning the tide to decreasing the transmission rate. Okay, let's talk about treatment. Um, we have 13 million HIV-positive patients on active uh, ART treatment now, and that's a dramatic increase, and that's very encouraging. Um, about 12 million of those are in developing countries, and when you consider um, the number that's on treatment compared to who needs it or who is eligible, we're hitting about a third, about 36%. So numbers are going up, but there's still um, some discrepancy, some need. And if you look at children, the number's not even as good. It's about a quarter of the kids who need to be on it. I'm going to blow up this a bit. Um, so you can see exponential growth in the number of people on treatment, which is fantastic. Um, the gray color there showing you sub-Saharan Africa, which definitely is carrying the burden. This is another way of looking at kind of the same thing um, with a map showing you different regions of the world, the number on treatment and the percentage that that reflects. Um, in the Americas, we're doing much better in terms of 44% of those who need treatment are on it. Sub-Saharan Africa is about 36%, and it varies. Uh, and this is the kids. So we still have a ways to go in terms of getting children who need to be on treatment, on in treatment and care. What are the treatment regimens? Okay, well, first of all, we do follow the World Health Organization regimens, and definitely it's three drugs, three or more. Uh, the standard is not to go any less than that because of developing resistance. Uh, what's new in treatment is that the CD4 count for initiating ART has gone up. 
So whereas it used to be um, a CD4 count of 350 is what would initiate the antiretrovirals, that number's moved up to 500. So somebody doesn't have to be as sick. Their CD4 count doesn't have to be as suppressed for them to uh, qualify for ARV treatment. First line is efavirenz, lamivudine, and tenofovir. Uh, for children, their first line is lamivudine, nevirapine, and zidovudine, uh, which you can see here. Now, one caveat to this is if you have a child who's already been exposed to nevirapine, if they were a child that was enrolled with an HIV-positive mom who got nevirapine at birth and through breastfeeding, and then they still develop uh, positive HIV, then they're going to need something different. So they have to be on a regimen that does not have levirapine. And um, usually this is what's used, a four-drug, lopinavir, ritonavir, lamivudine, and tenofovir. And then third line would be the lopinavir, ritonavir, as well as abacavir and lamivudine. Now, if you're sitting there and you're scribbling and you're trying to think, oh, I've got to write all this down, I've got to remember... <coughs> Don't worry about it. Put your pencils down because it seems to change. Every six months, it's like, oh, well, we're doing something different this six months. Um, and it can be very confusing. Um, the names are hard to say. It's hard to keep up with all the drugs and the new ones and the changing protocols. Why do protocols change? A lot of different reasons. I think one of the main ones is supply. What's available? Uh, what, are, what are the companies manufacturing most cheaply? What kind of pill combinations are they making? Um, you know, who does the, the bidding and wins the bid for the cheapest drugs gets to be on the top of the protocol. It's kind of arbitrary, um, but that's the reality of what we're dealing with. So as I go and work in these clinics, basically I just have to go and find out, okay, what's, what's new? What is the World Health Organization recommending at this time? And go with it and realize that they're, they're going to be in flux. Um, just a few caveats for nevirapine. Um, again, babies who get it um, in infancy and still develop HIV um, have to be on something different. Um, nevirapine is going to decrease the effectiveness of rifampicin or rifampin. So for TB patients, nevirapine is not going to be effective. Um, they need to be switched to efavirenz. And then there's kind of a lot of discussion on nevirapine and whether it should or should not be used in pregnancy. Like I said, the um, preventing mother-to-child transmission is an area where there's a lot of flux right now. Um, there was definitely fear that nevirapine was a teratogen. Um, and while ethavirenz is for sure a known teratogen, and we avoid that in pregnancy, nevirapine, there's fear about it, but it's really probably not a teratogen. Um, the ARV pregnancy registry has not seen an increased number of cases of birth defects. And when they looked at um, all, all trimester exposure to nevirapine um, and birth defects, the um, percentage was really no different from the general population. Now, what we do see, though, with nevirapine in pregnancy, particularly with chronic use, is more hepatic events, so more severe hepatic toxicity. So there again, probably nevirapine is not something you want to use in pregnancy unless the benefit really outweighs the risks. But saying all of that, the uh, regimen uh, at the top there uh, with the tenofovir and nevirapine as a three-drug treatment is what is the protocol of choice in uh, Nigeria. So... 
it's kind of like you've, you've got this push and shove in terms of trying to find out what's best and then kind of bottom line what's available. And, and definitely three-drug treatment is, is what's needed. There are um, lots of side effects. ARVs are difficult drugs to take. There's a lot of toxicity. A lot of times people just don't feel very well on them. It um, gives them anorexia. They don't want to eat, um, which just compounds nutritional problems. Uh, rashes are very common. Hepatitis is one of the most common side effects. Um, so for all of them, you have to think of rash, hepatitis, and anorexia. But with nevirapine, um, besides the rash and hepatitis, remember that it inhibits rifampicin or rifampin, so we don't use it with TB treatment. Zidavidine is pretty famous for its bone marrow suppression and anemia, so that has to be followed. Uh, Efavirenz, besides being a teratogen, gives hallucinations, which can be very disturbing. And with uh, tenofovir and the protease inhibitors, um, renal toxicity, um, I'm sorry, with uh, ritonavir and the protease inhibitors, the new side effect that's very worrisome is the lipodystrophy, um, changing the fat distribution. These patients will get a buffalo hump or abdominal obesity. It's very disturbing to them, um, and it can be lifelong and irreversible. So those are some side effects that are problematic. What's new in uh, laboratory monitoring? I was surprised as I went this year to the clinic just what lab equipment was available. Um, in fact, the whole HIV-AIDS program has taken on new sophistication. That's really kind of fun to see my, my uh, Maasai colleagues um, just moving up with sophistication and really giving state-of-the-art care. Um, they have a CD4 counter. They have uh, a test to check liver function enzymes, and that's pretty exciting. Um, the new number for initiation, uh, initiating ARVs is 500, and CD4 counts are um, checked routinely. Liver function tests are also checked before starting uh, ART treatment, and then a month later, and then every six months. The new kit on the block for lab monitoring is viral load testing, which just blew me away that our clinic was actually doing viral load um, testing. This is actually the gold standard now for monitoring treatment response. So if you're going to determine whether um, our treatment is being successful or is a failure, it's based on the viral load numbers. Viral load is checked after six months of treatment, and if it continues to be over a 1,000, you have to really look hard at do we need to change. Is there resistance or is the patient not compliant, and do we need to switch to other medications? Um, we're very familiar with um, the polymerase chain reaction, the nucleic acid amplification for HIV RNA. Um, that requires a lot of um, sophisticated um, equipment, electricity, blood draws, refrigeration. But what's new and exciting is the dried blood spot, uh, DBS, dried blood spot. And, and uh, there in the picture, she's got the little card. All it takes is a finger stick. Uh, it doesn't take a blood draw, just one drop of blood. It's put on the card. Multiple drops can go on this card, and then it gets shipped in to Nairobi, in our case, uh, for testing. doesn't require any electricity or any equipment. Um, it can be stored at room temperature, and they tend to be actually very reliable. In fact, you know, with viral loads over 3,000, there's 100% uh, concordance. Um, as the viral load drops, the dried blood spot is not quite as reliable or sensitive but it's, considering the, the, uh, um, the ease of doing it, it's a very elegant test. 
So when do you decide that your ART is not working and you need to try something different, try a new regimen? Well, there's clinical criteria as well as immunologic and viremic. So if a patient after six months of treatment is um, still has a stage four condition, uh, so an illness that is indicating severe immunodeficiency, um, that would be one reason to change. Or um, immunologic, if their CD4 count is still too low, if it's falling below baseline or if it's under 200. That, that number is also new. It used to be under 100. If the CD4 count was under 100, then you'd change treatment, but now we've raised that to 200. So we're not waiting as long to declare uh, treatment failure. And again, if the viral load is over 1,000, uh, particularly uh, over a three-month time, two consecutive tests, then we have to decide that, yes, there's treatment failure and we need to, we need to do something different. Now, before changing ART, there's uh, a significant amount of assessment that's done. So why is the treatment failing? Is this resistance to the drugs or is this noncompliance? Is the patient actually taking their medicines? Are they getting them? Um, are they adhering to the regimen appropriately? Do they understand how to take it? Um, are they taking their prophylactic medicines? Um, what's their nutritional status? So there's all kinds of factors to consider before you say, well, the drugs are failing. Um, this is a extremely helpful information here. Looking at how the guidelines have changed, in terms of what's new, um, there are several different um, parameters that have changed as to when do we start ARV treatment. Uh, we mentioned the CD4 count um, is now higher. Um, if patients are under 500, they get started on antiretrovirals. Also, children are continued for a longer period of time. So children used to be under two were put on ARTs now if they're under five. So that includes a lot more kids. Um, pregnant women with HIV, they're all put on treatment. Uh, no no um, barriers there. Also, if there's co-infection with TB and HIV, all of those patients are put on ART, as well as if they have hepatitis B and active hepatitis and liver disease. And also, we talked about the, the serodiscoordinate couples. The push now is to put all of them, both couples, on antiretroviral therapy. So we looked a few minutes ago on, on the statistics in terms of who's on treatment and how does that reflect on who is eligible. And we're only at about 30%. That's, that's a statistic that's a little bit hard to, um, to swallow, and this slide is going to kind of explain that a little bit. Um, part of the reason why we're still struggling with getting people, everybody who needs it on treatment, is that we've uh, raised the standards as who's eligible. So more people are eligible... Um, and so the same number are on treatment, uh, the, but the percentage of that compared to who's eligible has changed. So it's a little bit confusing there. Um, but we still, we still have a ways to go. But the, even though that statistic looks worse, um, the good news is that more people on treatment, more people are eligible for treatment. So hopefully they're going to be getting it. And the more who are on treatment, the less transmission occurs. So it's kind of a win-win situation. Okay, let's uh, talk about opportunistic infections and what's new in that arena. Um, basically, anyone who tests positive for HIV automatically gets put into AIDS treatment and care. Now, the treatment being ARVs, which not everybody would be eligible for, but everybody is eligible for the care, which includes opportunistic infection treatment. 
Um, Septrum is used for PCP prophylaxis and INH for TB prophylaxis. So all HIV-positive patients are going to get INH to prevent TB and Septrum. If they have a fungal infection, then they're put on fluconazole for life. Let's talk a bit about TB and HIV. Um, they go together. They, we've known for a long time that they travel together, and they still do. So much so that any HIV-positive patient has to be tested for TB as well. And every single TB patient has to be tested for HIV. They go hand in glove. And um, so you have to test both groups for the other. Then what do you do with that? Well, if a patient is already on HIV treatment and they test positive for TB, then you just have to change their regimen, take nevirapine out of the equation and put in efavirenz. However, the opposite, if they're already on TB treatment and then test positive for HIV, um, you have to kind of take that as in a stepwise process. If we start TB and HIV treatment at the same time, particularly if the patient is really ill, we can get them into trouble uh, with IRIS, the Immune Reconstitution Inflammatory Syndrome. That's a flare-up of the opportunistic infection as the immune system uh, recovers. Okay, so if, if you've got someone who's got the two diseases, an opportunistic infection and HIV, and you treat for both, as their CD4 count comes up and their immune system recovers, it's like they can all of a sudden put forth all these symptoms and all this inflammation to that opportunistic infection. So what we do instead is we treat the opportunistic infection first, particularly with TB. You start TB treatment first, and you continue that for about eight weeks and get them stabilized. Once they're stabilized, then you start the antiretrovirals. Now, you don't want to necessarily treat the TB completely, you know, the, the um, either six or nine months of treatment. You don't want to wait that full time to start the ARVs. Um, there's a higher mortality with that. So there's lower mortality if you start the ARVs in the early stages, but you want to give that window of stabilization. And 50 days seems to be kind of the golden zone um, where you can start TB treatment, wait about, 50 days, and then start the antiretrovirals. And that um, treats both and uh, gives less chance for the iris syndrome. Uh, this is a graph showing the number of both HIV and TB patients on treatment, and we're making progress as that is going up. This just looks at the immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome, iris. Again, it's a flare of the opportunistic infection once you start the ARVs. It's seen particularly with TB, cryptococcus, and MAC, the um, mycobacterium avium complex. With those three uh, illnesses, it's actually about a 30% incidence of getting the iris syndrome. Um, and if you wait a bit, giving that window, it, it goes down. Cryptococcal meningitis, what's new with that? Um, there are actually some programs that will test and screen for the cryptococcal antigen because that's a good uh, indicator that the patient might go into having meningitis during their first year of ART treatment. And for those patients who have the cryptococcal antigen positive, they are put off the conazole for preemptive prophylaxis treatment. Um, cryptococcal meningitis is the leading cause of death in AIDS. Okay, another thing that's new. I went to Kenya this um, in October and was just shocked that there was a computer in every single room. 
computers everywhere. And uh, I, I was amazed. It's like, wow, even in Kenya, they have the electronic medical records, which is, I think, the bane of my existence here in America. But um, they've got them there, and uh, they have, they're using the software called the IQ system. And uh, it's really pretty sophisticated. They can track their patients, the visits, what medicines they're on, what their lab values were. It's all right there on the computer and very elegant. Um, they can also uh, track their pharmacy stock with another program. However, all is not totally perfect um, because the electricity, even though there's a computer in every room, there isn't necessarily electricity in every room. And uh, so when the electricity can kind of come and go through the day and then the computers crash and that's a problem. So um, even though computers are prevalent and they've got this software they still have to use the paper records often, necessarily. I was also a little bit um, disappointed at the number of computer graveyards, uh, and they're growing. The network, um, here the computer is in the room, but it does, it's not necessarily talking to the main computer um, that's in the pharmacy area. So, you know, trying to build uh, not only having the computer there, but the network so that they all talk to one another is a challenge. So challenges are remaining with the electronic medical records. Network, the individual rooms may or may not have connections. The hardware definitely requires maintenance. The software requires adaptation and training. And then there's the computer compliance that a lot of the big donors now um, are putting stipulations on computer compliance. So either having the um, correct hardware or software, it's a challenge. And then you have all of the paper files on one side of the room and the computers on the other side of the room. And the computers are wonderful, but they don't necessarily have all the records uh, from the patient's previous visits. Those are in the paper charts. So yes, it's taking one person full time to transfer all those records over. And um, each of these personnel issues and uh, equipment issue costs money and has to be included in the budget uh, for the different uh, donor groups. Um, a comment on treatment failure. Um, what's interesting to me is that resistance really is not as big an issue as it used to be. Heart treatment is successful treatment. And so when someone dies, um, really resistance rarely is the problem. And treatment failures are more often secondary to nutritional problems or opportunistic infections or psychological issues. And the deaths most, most often are coming from tuberculosis or diarrhea and dehydration. Another thing that's new is death audits. Uh, at this point in our system, whenever uh, an HIV-positive patient, patient in their treatment and care, if they die, they undergo uh, kind of a morbidity and mortality report. They try to figure out why. Why did that, this person die? Were they not being compliant? Um, did they fall through the cracks? Is it part of facility carelessness or resistance to medications? Another new thing is streamlining. Um, it used to be that the program uh, would have HIV-positive patients coming on one day a month. You know, get them all together and we take care of that at one fell swoop. Well, quickly, people didn't want to necessarily come on that day because it labeled them as an AIDS patient. So then we opened it up to where they come any day, uh, but they were given a different card. But then people were sitting out here on the porch, you know, well, you've got a yellow card. I've got a pink card. What's up with that? So stigma comes in a lot of different flavors, and we had to deal with that. Um, so now they're mainstreamed. 
they're seen any day, and uh, they have the same color card. Follow-up is critical for adherence and for success of the program. Um, ARVs patients are followed monthly. TB patients are followed weekly until they stabilize. And basically all the different services are offered every day of the week. There's also mobile clinics because a lot of these folks, it's just too hard to get to the clinic every month to get their medicines. And what we're finding works with adherence and retention in the program is going out to them, going to the village. And we have that beautiful mobile clinic um, that can go. And um, there are other trucks that they, they basically load up everything. They load up the testing equipment and the vaccinations and medicines and everything, and they go out to the clinic. And they go once a month, and they see everybody. And they go house to house. Instead of, you know, lining people up, oh, here's your pillbox, uh, they actually go house to house, and that way nobody's um, singled out, and everybody gets invited to test, couples are invited to test. It really has been a very successful program. So what we're seeing works with adherence is home-based care. Um, you may hear the term DOT, which is direct observed therapy. Basically, it's where um, the health worker goes to the patient, hands them the medicine, watches them take it direct observed. Pill boxes also work very well where the pills are already kind of in the little pill box and we give that to somebody and then the health worker can come and kind of check the box and see are you taking your medicines as you're supposed to. As you can imagine this is very labor intensive and it's required not just a lot of clinic personnel but also community volunteers um, to make the, all these house calls, uh, to check compliance, to monitor people's condition, get them to the clinic when they're sick, to pray with them, do education, but it's, it's working. And we're seeing retention rates that are really, at this point, I think, fairly phenomenal. Um, in 12 months' time, 86% are still in the program. Um, five years out, 73% are still in the program. And this, this is really, it, it's good. Although there's still that down curve. So, you know, we still have a ways to go in trying to keep patients compliant and in the program. And to be honest, we face this here in the U.S. as well. Okay, another thing that is uh, new is funding. And I just want to spend a few minutes talking about kind of the financial realities that we're facing. First of all, by law, all HIV-positive patients get all totally free care. This is in Kenya, and I've seen this other places, too. It's wonderful for the HIV-positive patients. Their medicines are free. Their care is free. Everything is free. They don't have to pay, and that's great for them. For the clinic system, on the other hand, particularly when a third of your patient base is HIV-positive and therefore non-paying, that's a big ouch. Um, and it's turned clinic systems that used to operate in the black to operating in the red. So this is it's difficult. Another um, common reality is competitive bidding. And this is where the recipient NGO has to redo the process and resubmit their budget and program strategy every few years. Competitive bidding is the effort of the donors um, to have fiscal responsibility. You know, basically, you have to prove to us um, that you're gonna, what the program is that you're doing. And um, every few years, they kind of wipe the slate clean and say, okay, everybody has to resubmit um, their budget and their strategies, and we're going to take the cheapest ones. Sounds kind of good in theory, but having seen the clinic system have to go through that competitive bidding process over and over, it's, it's a struggle. It's a challenge. And it's meant new conduit NGOs. So the PEPFAR grant money, the U.S. 
funds for AIDS treatment and care in Africa went through the CDC. It still goes through the CDC. But the CDC has had different conduit agencies that get that to the ground, to the community level. It, used to, it started out as um, CHF, Community Health Finance. Then uh, several years later, Catholic Relief Services won the bid, so they were the conduit. Uh, in the last year, they've lost the bid, and now the Elizabeth Glacier Pediatric AIDS Foundation, EGPAF, has won the bid. They won the bid because they submitted a lower budget. For us on the ground, it means whereas last year we had 34 million, ki- 34 million Kenya shillings coming through Catholic Relief Services, we only have 21 million Kenya shillings coming through EGPAF. So that's a third cut in the budget. So the reality is that budgets are going down. The reality is that donors are pulling out. Why? Well, AIDS is no longer an emergency. That was the actual quote I heard. AIDS is no longer an emergency. It's a chronic disease. Yes, it is. And it needs lifelong meds. We've got 13 million people worldwide who are going to need medicines every day for the rest of their life. Well, that kind of clashes with donor fatigue. So at this point, what do you do? Well, our African um, colleagues are very resourceful. They're looking for new donors. And they are actually finding new donors, new sources of funding. But those new donors often have kind of a different agenda, maybe, or different endpoints and targets. There's also some new funding strategies like matching funds, which in theory also sounds really good that, oh, yes, I will fund a $10 million program. You give, two, you give $2 million and I'll release the other $8 million. Okay, well, that's good if you have $2 million. Um, it's not so good a strategy if you don't have that money to start out with. So they're definitely having to adjust programs, and budget cuts are a reality. And what we're seeing is decreasing staff both clinical staff and admin staff. We're seeing a reduction in those mobile clinics and restricting the activities just to the facility, which is difficult uh, to get people in. And then changing the program. Um, Because at this point, there are new interests in the donor uh, world. And antenatal care is kind of the new buzzword. That's one of the new um, things that we're funding is being found. So what I've seen is that programs take the ANC and try to uh, join it with HIV care and testing to get the program to move forward. So the new donors, sometimes they're a blessing because they bring new initiatives, new training, new behavior modification, but they sometimes can be a hassle. Very often as as we transition to a new donor, there's a gap in terms of what they will cover and what we're trying to accomplish through the programs. And then you've got all these new players trying to learn to play and work together. Fortunately, as my African colleague said, Africans are adept at working with what they have. And I've been amazed that they really are moving forward with the program. Um, A couple of other key targets and points. Um, Knowing that HIV-AIDS has such huge social and cultural issues, um, donors are actually looking at this, and I'm glad. Uh, Gender inequality is a big issue. 2006, 59% of all AIDS living with HIV-AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa were women. Actually, that percentage has gone up to 75% now. And women unfortunately, bear the brunt of the disease of HIV-AIDS and a lot of its ramifications, including gender-based violence. 
This is Milka. She's a very sweet lady, and as I went to see her, she had this bandage. She was kind of wearing in shame, covering up enormous, huge swelling and purulent drainage from her eye, um, probably a fracture um, from where her husband had hit her. And um, this is not, unfortunately, this is not uncommon. Um, HIV AIDS is causing a lot of cultural breakdown. Those who are sick can't work. Um, children and wives are being left behind. And so the cycle of poverty in many cases gets worse. But fortunately, like I said, donors are, are recognizing this, and there are a lot of efforts to provi- um, provide care for women and increase their health status. Um, the indicators, as I said, are kind of shifting um, more to infant and maternal mortality, and donors are shifting to ANC women's rights and stopping female genital mutilation and safe birthing. Um, this is kind of an example where the clinic that I used to work in that um, provided care for a 1,000 patients a month now has been rebuilt into a maternity. provides five births a month. And I'm thinking, what happened <laughs> with the structure? But that's what the donor would pay for. So they have a new maternity. Fortunately, there's another donor who was willing to build another um, building for um, ANC uh, where they can continue their other patient care. So it's like things are evolving. You know, we all kind of do that. It's what's available, what resources do I have, how can I make the most of them, and uh, continue on. Care and support is definitely a part of the program for AIDS care. Child sponsorship, microfinance, income generating activities are continuing to be key. What I'm seeing, it's kind of fun, they're getting more sophisticated. And I'm seeing groups. Uh, There's a lot of teaching that goes in with the training of the skill, but also with the bookkeeping. The groups will hold each other accountable and guarantee each other's loans. It has allowed a 97% payback rate on the microfinance loans. And uh, often they get their equipment with graduation. Care is getting more sophisticated. This was a really top-rate dental uh, unit. And um, it's, it's encouraging to see what's being um, invested and donated. But at the same time, there's also a lot of junk piling up. And what t- seem to be good ideas for income generation are now just sitting vacant or empty, a greenhouse that doesn't have anything green growing in it, a chicken coop without chickens, and our lovely um, THC, uh, sorry, T- <laughs> the HIV testing and counseling mobile unit, it's a big lead weight because what does it need to be mobile? It needs a truck um, to pull it, and well, we don't have that, so it sits there. There's also a lot of equipment that doesn't even come out of the box and things that don't get maintained. So, you know, there's a lot of work that yet to be done in terms of what is culturally sensitive and relevant and who's going to carry it on and pay for it in the future. As I went back, though, I was really, really encouraged. I went back for the clinic board meeting. This is the clinic that I've been associated, a a whole clinic system I've been associated with now for two decades. And when I went back for the board meeting, I was was very pleased. There there aren't a lot of white faces. And they're moving forward and uh, learning self-governance on their own. There's also success with the social norms, that things are changing. Um, Back in the late 80s and 90s, what we had available to us for treatment and care was education and the church, really. Uh, Jesus, at that time, was kind of like, that's all we have to offer, and and we really hope that's going to 
turn the tide for HIV AIDS. And 20 years later, we are seeing some success. There is decreasing prevalence among the Maasai. And when I really try to investigate, well, why is that? Well, there's better understanding and fear of HIV, and it has changed culture. Sharing of wives is really no longer accepted. Taking on a second wife is not as common. Risky behaviors are being avoided, and there is a religious influence, and people are going to church, was the quote. And I'm so excited about that, that the spiritual care for HIV is having a dramatic impact on church growth, and new churches are being formed. All right, a couple minutes. We can open up for questions and answers. I would love to hear from you. I hope you can read this. This was a quote um, on the clinic wall. Uh, I think reflects a lot of the attitude that the, the workers there, the clinic workers, the, the community leaders, the church leaders, really are united in this effort for HIV, AIDS, and care. And uh, they know that we have to depend on God for any success at all. All right, we have just a couple of minutes for questions. Yes. Yes. Do we do that here? That's a good question. Um, and right now, my full-time job is as an ER doctor, and then I'm a missionary on the side. And it's interesting how here in the States, the HIV care is really sequestered. I hardly ever see an HIV-positive patient or AIDS patient um, in mainstream U.S. <coughs> medical care. Um, does anybody know? Are HIV-positive patients placed on INH for life? No. I didn't think so. Higher prevalence of TB, yes, in those areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think because there you, you see HIV and TB um, together more often than not. Yeah. Yes. Okay, she's asking about breastfeeding and if the, if the woman who is breastfeeding um, is immunologically compromised and her CD4 count is going down and, and we assume then her viremic load would be going up, do we still recommend breastfeeding? Excellent question um, because you're raising the risk, you know, if that woman is going to be HIV positive and high viremia and transmission. But the answer is, and I asked that because I thought, well, maybe they're not. But nope, still breastfeeding, 100% breastfeeding. Yeah, breastfeeding only. Um, and the goal then would be to try to get the woman's regimen, you know, her care improved so that her health goes up and the viremic load goes down. Her risk of transmission would be going down. Now, at the same time, the baby is actually still on the verapine. So you're kind of getting both the... Um, antiretroviral treatment as prevention as well as the pre-exposure prophylaxis treatment for the child. So having the child on the verapine throughout the entire span of breastfeeding was new. And, you know, I think that's kind of bold, but it seems to be working. Yeah. Any other questions? think we may be out of, yes, we're out of time. So thank you very much. I'll be here and around, and I really appreciate you all still having an interest in HIV AIDS because it's still with us. Thank you.